0: For many people, language is a central characteristic of their social identity. In modern South Asia, the production of Urdu and Hindi as national languages was intricately tied to the hardening of religious identities. South Asian lexicographers, those folks who were most intimately working with language, were at the center of this political realignment. In negotiating languages, Urdu, Hindi, and the definition of modern South Asia, Walter Hakala traces the long history of the construction of Urdu as a language of cultural and national identity. Dictionaries are the key source for understanding the changing social and political landscape of South Asia. Beginning in the 17th century, negotiating languages offers an episodic genealogy of the ideological underpinnings and political consequences of dictionary production. In our conversation, we discuss South Asia's multilingual, pre-modern literature linguistic authority, Urdu's oldest dictionary, the influence of colonial knowledge production, the changing social and material challenges in 20th century lexographical production, British lexicographers and their relationship with local linguists, Islamicized Urdu literary culture, and questions of whether non-Muslims could sufficiently produce Ordu dictionaries. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Here's my conversation with Walter Hakala about Negotiating Languages, Urdu, Hindi, and the Definition of Modern South Asia, published with Columbia University Press. Welcome, Walt. Thanks for joining me. How are you?
1: I'm doing great, Christian. Thank you.
0: So I'm really excited to talk about this, this wonderful book of yours, Negotiating Languages, um, well-deserving of all the accolades it's already received. Congratulations on all of those.
1: Well, congratulations to you as well. You, your book has also come out, and I've been yes. assigning your work since I first met you in 2012.
0: <laughs> That's very kind of you. That's very kind of you. Uh, before we get into uh, uh, this book of yours, um, we always start with a little bit about our authors. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to the study of South Ag- uh, Asian societies and languages uh, were there mentors or particular moments that uh, have kind of shaped the subjects you look at or the approaches you take. How d- how did you end up where you are?
1: Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you, and I'm I'm very very honored to be speaking as part of the New Books Network. Uh, I'm a big fan, and I've spent many a day shoveling snow in Buffalo uh, (laughs) while listening to uh, new books in Islamic studies, learning a lot from the podcast. So it's just, I'm really, really flattered to be a part of this, uh, to give the background. I could give a very short version, but I think I'll, I'll, I'll beg your indulgence and, and give a slightly longer version. Um, I am actually a second generation South Asian studies student and maybe scholar. My father uh, was a student at the University of Chicago studying medieval Hindi Sufi romances, uh, actually written in a dialect that's known as Avadi. And these, uh, he studied one work in particular that's gained quite a bit of notoriety uh, called the Padmavat, which is um, was written by a Sufi but he, my father was interested in its depiction of yogic techniques. It was the 1970s, and that was a really hot topic. Um, so he was a student on an American Institute of Indian Studies um, uh, junior fellowship in uh, 1978 and 79 when um, when I was born, my mother was with him. And so I was actually born in New Delhi, India, uh, when my father was a graduate student. And uh, we returned shortly after that to Chicago. And as my father was completing his PhD dissertation, he was recruited. Uh, and I understand this is yet another period uh, when it was very difficult to get jobs, uh, tenure track positions. He was recruited by the CIA. And so his first official posting with the US government was in New Delhi, India. So we returned to India in 1983. And I lived there with my family. I had a little sister and we eventually uh, had a little brother as well. Uh, And uh, we lived in New Delhi for three and a half years and from there we moved to peshawar pakistan on the border with afghanistan and this is in 1986 when um uh, the united states was very involved with efforts uh supporting the mujahideen and other uh so-called freedom fighters uh in defeating the soviet union uh which was engaged in a, in a war uh, there's a civil war in afghanistan during that time and uh after that i spent probably my first real year in the United States as a, as a thinking being. But, uh, we, we then moved to Rabat, Morocco and I spent a year and a half there, uh, before we were evacuated during, uh, the, the, uh, Iran at uh, the Iraq, um, Kuwait war. And, uh, then I spent the rest of my childhood outside of Washington, DC. So, um, I had this you know, childhood interest in uh, Islam in in, uh, South Asia. Uh, But I also started to have more and more disagreements with my father. Um, He left the CIA and eventually... Uh, took a political position uh, in in the House of Representatives uh, as uh, the head Republican staff member of the House Committee on Intelligence, the one that's been in the news a lot recently. He and I started to disagree a lot, and I vowed I'd do nothing like my father. <laughs> so I, uh, I decided I'd, I'd try to become an astronomer, and I did some really fun work as a high school student. I went to a really great high school. But uh, when I got to college at the University of Virginia... I was so enthusiastic about continuing the research that I'd started as a high school student. I went to the director of undergraduate studies in the astronomy department, and I said, I, I want to get involved with some kind of research project. And uh, he told me to come back when I was a, a fourth year, a senior. And I said, no, no, I think, I think maybe you, you misunderstand me. I, I have already been doing research. I've worked at this and that place. Uh, and he said, sorry, we don't, we don't deal with underclassmen. And so at the same time, I was taking for fun a class in Hindi with this, I mean, this brilliant, uh, uh, brilliant scholar, uh, Griffith Chause, who still teaches at the University of Virginia. And I was also taking a class on the Mughal Empire with Richard Barnett, uh, who is also a marvelous, marvelous teacher. And um, I won a small prize in Richard Barnett's class on, on Mughal history. And uh, I was just absolutely enthralled by the Hindi class that I was taking. And so I remember after that meeting with the director of undergraduate studies, I went and I changed my major to Asian studies. And um, because I'd taken so many science classes, I was able to throw myself into as many South Asia courses as I could possibly take at the University of Virginia. So I had the chance to uh, begin studying Urdu and, and Farsi and uh, take classes on art history, as many history courses and literature courses as I possibly could. So um, in many ways, I, I sort of, yeah, I, I just uh, was, was so fortunate to take advantage and to know at the age of 18, that this is something that I really wanted to do. And I had this very formative experience as a study abroad student in 1999, studying on the UVA Emory program in Jodhpur, Rajasthan, where um, I I got to meet a lot of uh, different families, in particular, a number of different uh, Muslim families. And they were uh, very different than I expected. One of the ways was that um, many of these people, they many of these friends, including this one family, the Khan family, they told me that uh, they never went to the mosque. Instead, they would go to Dargaz or Sufi shrines. And another thing that was surprising to me was uh, that I couldn't find anyone in North India who spoke the Hindi that I'd studied in college as their first language. They spoke different what, what we would call dialects, but I mean, really just grammatically very different languages. And it was a bit of a shock to me to realize that there are actually not that many people who speak Hindi as their mother tongue. And uh, it got me thinking about the history of these languages in a way that, I, that, that wasn't clear to me as a student in the United States. Um, so after I graduated from college, I moved to India. My mother was working for the State Department, and I had a chance to Uh, follow her to India. And I did my master's degree at a university in New Delhi called Jawaharlal Nehru University studying Urdu. And um, it was extremely difficult for me. Um, I struggled to keep up with the readings. Um, I struggled to write my papers in Urdu. I always tell people that I probably understood about 30% of what my professors were saying when I started. And I maybe understood about 60% when I finished. But um, it was very uh enlightening not necessarily because of what they taught me in the classroom but what i could see was the the more general perspective of the status of urdu as a subject of scholarly inquiry in that country because um it was it was taught much more broadly than it than it could have been done in the united states and so when i came back to the us as a um as a phd student where i started at the university of pennsylvania I think I had a, a broader perspective of Urdu than I might have had if I had only done my education in the United States. So um I I I could talk a little bit more about how I came to become interested in dictionaries. I I remember as a child I didn't know any <laughs> English curse words uh because I was I was raised, you know, in a very protected setting. And I remember as a kid going through my parents' Webster's Collegiate Dictionary and trying to look up bad words because I just didn't have access to any, and, and it was, as you might imagine, kind of frustrating because there aren't that many bad words in, in older dictionaries. And uh, and uh, as a as a student of language, I'm sure many people have shared this experience. I you know would be assigned literature to read, and. Um, I remember just, again, thinking, how much easier would this be if authors would use all the difficult words in some kind of alphabetical order? Um, that way I wouldn't have to flip back and forth through the dictionary to find them. And one thing that I thought was, I, I think I was onto something when I, when I read uh, as, a, as a PhD student about how one of the most famous Urdu poets, when he was living in exile away from Delhi, He wanted his son to learn Persian, which at that time in the 18th century was the language that elites spoke in their homes and and it was really necessary to pursue careers, uh, professional careers in the government. And so he decided to write some amusing anecdotes about various figures, and then he also wrote an autobiography. But uh, one of the translators of this work discovered that Almost all, like many of the difficult words that appear in that book, appear in the same order as they do in a Persian dictionary that the author um, Mir's uncle, the, uh, the the great scholar Sarajidin Ali Khan Arzu, he wrote a dictionary, and the the, the words uh, it's a dictionary of different proverbs and different difficult words. This uh, Urdu poet, in writing a Persian autobiography, uses those words. Often in the same order that they appear in the dictionary, and for me, it's like those moments where uh, archaeologists describe seeing thumbprints in 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 clay pots and and realizing that there's another human being that made this thing. Um, Seeing that other people have struggled with language the same way that I have, I think, really made it seem like a uh, like a vital topic for me. And uh, and so uh, I I thought that maybe instead of Spending so much time trying to make sense of literature by reading dictionaries, why not just skip the last part and focus on the dictionaries themselves and uh, and so you know i i could I could get more into this later but um, it, i I think everybody has had to use dictionaries at some point to make sense of languages with which they're not familiar. And uh, for me, that includes the English language, because even though I spoke it as a child, I wasn't exposed to all the the, the entire range of the English language, obviously, as someone raised overseas.
0: Yeah, this is uh, this is fascinating, Walt. It's, it's really always interesting to kind of hear these uh, these kind of personal genealogies uh, that bring us to our scholarship. Um, so uh, for, for many people, right, even though you've kind of already started to hint at this a little bit, um for your book, you use dictionaries as a source for understanding the changing, uh, social and political landscape of South Asia. Um, you talk about them, uh, communicating, uh, what I believe you call dominant cosmographies. Um, and, uh, but these lexicographical works, uh, Look different over time. Um, they're certainly not like uh, the Webster's Dictionary that we're thinking of, uh, perhaps uh, some listeners. Um, so uh, there's this, pro- it's a product of both kind of the individual author, but also reflective of this collective effort. It's at once both uh, descriptive and prescriptive in many ways. Um, so just to kind of get us into your materials uh what what do uh, South Asian uh, lexicographical works look like in terms of kind of organi- uh, organizational systems uh poetic or narrative approaches, their multilingual nature um, yeah what what makes these sources uh, useful for you
1: okay, so um <clears throat> At, at some point I'll get into a bit of the the differences or the way that the, the linguistic landscape of South Asia, but maybe right now the best way to address this is to talk about different genres of um, works that we could say are primarily devoted to writing and explaining different words. So um, one way to think about this is as a product of changing technologies of writing. So, um, as I'm sure, you know many uh, many of the listeners will will be familiar. Um, paper was very scarce, and um, there are different functions of lexicography, different types of readers, and so um, some of the earliest examples of works that describe Indian language terms from a Persian or Arabic language perspective are texts that are called Nisabs. And um, the the Nisab genre is usually traced back to a work that was prepared probably in Afghanistan uh, around the year 1220. And what it does is it organizes, uh, it's it's a bilingual Arabic-Persian vocabulary written in verse form, and it's organized into different sections based on Uh, the Arabic uh, poetic meter of each of each verse. And now what's weird about this is that we're not usually uh, we usually don't recognize poems as being dictionaries, but the reason that poetry was a very good vehicle for conveying information about languages was that poetry is sort of designed in some ways to be memorized. So it has a rhythm, it has a rhyme. Uh, There's, there are other sort of technologies that are also used to make it easily memorized. So uh, by the time this genre arrives in India, and there's some debate about when it does, but one, one of the works has been attributed to probably the most famous Indian poet of Persian, Amir who lived in the 13th and 14th uh, Christian centuries. Um, He, uh, Whether or not this was actually written by him, it was a work that gave Hindi equivalents or something that resembles Hindi uh, through Persian and Arabic glosses. And so, for example, the very first verse of this poem goes Khalik Bari Sirjan Har Wahid Ek Bada So, Khalik and Bari are two of the 99 sometimes called beautiful names of of God. and Sirjanhar—they both mean creator. Sirjanhar means creator, but it's in—it's—it's uh, it's an Indic word. It's a word derived from Sanskrit or or one of the one of the vernaculars. And then it goes on to say Wahid, which means one. Ek, which is Hindi for one. Uh, uh, bara means a creator. Or bada means creator in Arabic, and kardar means creator in Hindi. So it just goes on and gives these equivalent terms. Uh, In in these different languages, subsequent to that, various authors, they they came up with really ingenious techniques. One author in the 16th century, he places all of the different terms in his bilingual Persian Hindi vocabulary. Uh, He organizes them into chapters that are named for the rooms of a nobleman's house. So uh, this this seems really similar to an ancient Greek memory technique, where if you want to give a speech, you put all the different items that you want to mention in your speech in a sort of imaginary memory palace, and you walk through it. So in this case, all of the different items that are that are glossed in in this language, or in these two languages, they're placed in different uh, different rooms. So one of the reasons that people would do this is that children probably could not at that point, many children could not at that point afford to have uh, a copy of a sort of non-poetic dictionary made. So they would have to instead preserve this this information by memorizing it. And um, I mean, despite people who claim to sit down and memorize the dictionary, I, I doubt that many people could actually recite word for word every single item that's in sort of a modern dictionary. Um, if you think about it back back. Then, before the advent of print, if you wanted to copy a manuscript you 'd have to generally hire a professional copyist you 'd have to acquire an original you 'd have to get the paper, which at that point could be very expensive because it would be manufactured from cotton and other rather expensive materials and you 'd have to you know have this person copy often in your own home uh, those materials for you so you know acquiring a large, thick dictionary. That was often beyond the abilities of many people. So, um, other types of works that are not, you know, exactly like Webster's Dictionary include the glossary. So, sometimes if you're reading a a novel in translation or 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 uh, some sort of other uh, literary work, you'll find at the end of it a glossary that explains all the difficult or potentially unfamiliar words to the reader. And so, glossaries often are are prepared. For major works or assigned educational works uh, that explain the terms that are within a particular text, so some of the most famous Persian works uh, that were read by students in India include, for example, the the Gulistan by Saadi, which is a a, a very famous uh, very famous medieval Persian work. There are dozens of glossaries prepared by by Indians and and the British because it was also part of their curriculum. Um, that, that would uh, provide uh, Indian equivalents or, or English equivalents for the Persian, difficult Persian words that appeared in that text. And then there's also a long tradition of uh, monolingual and, and often uh, and also bilingual works uh, that give definitions or give lists of synonyms uh, in a way that's not meant to be memorized, but meant to be consulted in some kind of alphabetical order. But what's fascinating about many of the examples from the Arabic and Persian tradition is that these are often arranged not by the first letter in in the word, but by the last letter or, I mean, there's some other other uh, types of alphabetical order that, um, that actually require quite a bit of training to use, but the ones that are organized by last letter, um, these have sometimes been speculated to be intended for poets who would write uh, a type of, Poetry that's known as the qasida, and the qasida is um, is is uh, it's originally an Arabic literary form, but it's spread um, really throughout Asia and and Africa. Uh, It uh, it's it's um, most recognizable generic um, format is that it uses one rhyme uh, in every verse, and if you imagine a poet who has to write a poem really rapidly um, organizing words by their last letter is a very quick way of finding rhymes. And so if you have to write a poem that's 30 or 40 lines long and you need to find as many different rhyming words as possible, uh, having a dictionary that provides those could be very useful. So it's not really until the um, 18th and 19th century that we start to see dictionaries being being organized uh, alphabetically by their first letter as the the dominant form, the dominant genre of lexicography. So, I mean, that's 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 uh, in a nutshell some of the different genres that we see: the the vocabulary in verse, the glossary to a uh, to a literary text, and then the defining dictionary. Um, and you know, I can get into some more of the different um, uh, other other changes that we see happening as as maybe I, I can discuss uh, the languages that are involved as well.
0: Yeah, and so um, you, you break this, uh, the book up in your analysis of these uh, works uh, chronologically beginning in the 1700s. And here you look uh, primarily at uh, one text and its reception within the kind of social world of uh, the 18th century. Um, so uh, can you tell us a little bit about this text uh, titled Marvels of Words and um, Described uh, in the contemporary period as Ur- Urdu's oldest dictionary, um, how and why it was compiled, and uh, and then how it was received, which is a big part of your analysis here.
1: Right. So um, to maybe before I even get to that, I think we have to unpack what we mean by the word Urdu in some ways, and that's that's a big focus of that second chapter in my book. Um, so the India, uh, is famously multilingual. Uh, there's a saying that the language changes every 12 miles or so. And so does the water and other things, the style of walking. Um, and it's, it's often baffling, I think for a lot of, um, outsiders, how, uh, how the society can function with so many different languages being used. Um, so, one of the reasons that there is such linguistic diversity is that there's also been a long tradition of an elite class knowing how to use a different language that they rarely or, or maybe do not commonly speak, but which is uh, a language of literacy. So to give an example, maybe from medieval Europe, uh, you know, many people have observed that um anyone who is most people who are literate meant literacy meant knowledge of, um, literacy meant knowledge of, uh, Latin. And so in the South Asian context, uh, literacy primarily meant literacy in Arabic and Persian, especially in Northern India, also in Sanskrit. though there are many, uh, many people who knew Sanskrit who, um, could also, uh, who, who didn't necessarily rely on literacy to access it. So, um, one of the challenges for those of us who study the languages that are not Arabic, Persian, Sanskrit is to identify in the, the various regional languages of India, early written traditions. So, um, the, the author of this, of this text, um, the Qaraibu Lughat, um, he was we don't know very much about him, except that he had a name uh, many many Indian names will include their the place that they're from and the place that he's from is a relatively small city that's located about one hundred miles away from what was then the Mughal capital, or what was one of the Mughal capitals, uh, the city of Delhi. Uh, the city of new Delhi, which is outside of the old city of Delhi is the current capital of the, the Republic of India. And he went and appears to have gone uh, and collected terms that were used in his, in his hometown or the region where he lived. And he provided uh, Persian synonyms for them and brief explanations of how to write those Persian synonyms. And, um, when this tech, so it's it's a little bit unclear why he would write these words down. They weren't necessarily literary terms. In fact, they're often um, words that are associated with agriculture, and so it's it's not entirely clear why he would prepare a dictionary of words in his own dialect of what we might call today Hindi, um, and then provide Persian definitions or Persian equivalents for these. And so, in fact, it was so baffling uh, that. Fifty or maybe a hundred years later, uh, this this great scholar of Persian who lived in Delhi, um, Sirajuddin Ali Khan I mentioned him before. He was a great lexicographer of Persian. He he was so upset in some ways by all of the inclusion of these these rustic words that he decided he was going to write a critical, a criticism of this dictionary, talking about all the mistakes that he thinks he found in it. And so throughout this text, he mentions on many occasions, he says, I don't know this, this Hindi word that he's using people in the big cities. We don't use these words. And when he says, we don't use these words, he says people of the Urdu and And so this, this is where um, there's a lot of confusion about this word Urdu. Urdu, at this point in time, appears to refer to uh, it's a Turkish word that means and it, it means a camp, a military camp. And so the Urdu Emuela means the exalted camp, meaning the royal camp, the place where uh, the the kings would would uh, establish their uh, establish their cities. Now, uh, the Mughals they derived their ancestry from Central Asians who were nomads. And in fact, many of the early Mughal emperors of India, they would have these massive tent cities with, you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people residing in them that when they would go on military campaigns, they would move them from place to place. And these were known as the urdu Muela. As they became more, uh, urbanized and started to build up bigger and bigger cities, uh, certain cities became what we might call urdus and in fact, today, in the old city of uh, in the old city of delhi or what 's known as Shah Jahanabad, there 's a neighborhood that 's called urdu or urdu bazaar and that is that literally means the place where the army camp would be set up and so at this point uh, what 's fascinating is that uh, by the middle of the 18th century, uh, there's an effort to reform this set of different uh, spoken forms that that uh, we might call under the bigger category of Hindi, and to refine that into saying that there's certain forms that are acceptable in the imperial cities, and other forms that are uh, beyond that, and so uh, some of the some of the the controversy. Uh, surrounding this earlier, um, earlier seventeenth-century uh, text is whether it actually is in a language that we might today call Urdu, or whether it was one of the many dialects of northern India um, that that is somewhat beyond what we might today call Urdu.
0: As you move along here, uh, you kind of tackle these larger questions through these specific works, and uh, moving into the nineteenth century, um, there's. Uh, social contexts that are shifting in terms of um, rulership, uh, power, these kind of things. Um, and so uh, two of the big things that are happening here um, in the 19th century is uh, language uh, in many ways is being shaped by a colonial knowledge production. Uh, and people's relationship with the, these systems of power. Um, and it's also becoming uh, reflective of specific group formations in many ways. Um, so uh, what what was going on with these shifts uh, in lexicographic works during the 19th century? Um, and, and how can we think about uh, the, the specific text you're looking at uh, in relation to these ideas of structures of power and group identity um, in your kind of narrative about uh, the the changing landscape of uh, of dictionaries.
1: Yeah. Um well so yeah the 19th century a lot
0: to unpack there right now. Sorry. Yeah,
1: there's a lot to unpack and um I don't know if I'll get around to explaining everything but the 19th century is really um a pivotal period uh and it's I think the heart of of the book that I did write about. Um so to to back up a little bit and just explain the ecology of languages in South Asia. Um, when the British arrived in India, they found that the language that was, um, used for official purposes by the Mughal empire, which was the dominant political entity, uh, in South Asia, really from the 16th century onward was Persian. And, um, Persian, as, as I'm sure your listeners will know, is, uh, you know, it's a group of languages. It's a group of dialects um, that's, you know, largely spoken today in, you know, uh, in, in Iran and uh, Afghanistan, Tajikistan. But at that point, uh, it's also a language of, uh, it's an official language that's used for official bureaucracy uh, in a much wider swath of um of what's now South Asia, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, and even western asia and and, and parts of europe and um, and so it it was a very effective way of communicating, however, it was not by and large a spoken language, at least not of the general South Asian population and so the British were aware that there was, there was this one language, Persian, which was very effective for written communication and for communicating with official uh, with officials uh, in the various uh, local governments with which they were interacting. But they also were concerned because they found that it was not very effective for communicating with the populations that they, as they started to become a, a, a greater political force themselves in South Asia, the populations that they were governing. So um, they were interested in identifying a spoken language that they could then turn or that they could, uh, you know, repurpose in some ways as a written language for political purposes. And so what they discovered was that because of the the great uh, cachet of the Mughal Empire, and various other um, muslim ruled states in South Asia, one spoken language which was at that time starting to be called Urdu, which was the urban style of uh, the, of of Hindi that was used in the Delhi area. it was uh, in use by a certain segment of the urban populations across much of North India and in several uh, major South southern Indian cities as well, uh, especially by Muslim populations, but also the various Hindu and, and non-Muslim populations that interacted with the Mughal Empire in some ways. So um, they started to promote, especially with the advent of the uh, College at Fort William, which was an uh, institution established um, at, in the very first years of the 19th century, to train British boys who were sent to India to serve in the East India Company, to train them in Indian languages and also to, to teach them about various other topics because they're very young. Um, and, and so the British uh, found that that uh, what a language they called Urdu or sometimes Hindustani was a very effective way of communicating with a broad section of the population and started promoting it as uh, an alternative to Persian as an official language. One of the problems with that, however, was that it was not spoken by all segments of society and wasn't spe- spoken um, universally across the entire uh, and across the entire uh, subcontinent. And so, um, and so, uh, they they promoted Urdu uh, increasingly at uh, in, in place of, of Persian, but it never really fully replaced it for for the Indian, um, uh, Persian speaking or Persian, uh, reading elite, um, they found that they could, uh, that, that they could in some ways turn their knowledge of Persian into a, a very useful, um, uh, it, it, it turned very, they were able to, um, translate many of their works into Urdu at this time. And they found that the British were willing to patronize those sorts of things. So, um, The first Urdu dictionaries, including the one that I mentioned earlier from the 17th century, they gave Persian definitions of Indian terms. And uh, it wasn't until the middle of the 19th century that Urdu sort of becomes um, independent enough from, from its Persian legacy to become itself a defining language. So you start to see around 1849 or so, the first monolingual, meaning uh, monolingual dictionaries, meaning dictionaries that will give a definition in Urdu for Urdu terms, and um, and uh, increasingly, as I as I sort of point out through the nineteenth century, we start to see different organizations appear that promote uh, the translation of materials into Urdu. So there's uh, the Vernacular Translation Society and other groups, and it starts to replace. Uh, Persian as as a language of administration, to the point where by 1837, uh, Urdu becomes, uh, for all uh, for all intents and purposes, the uh, the official language throughout the most populous states in northern India. Um, one of the issues with that, however, is as I was saying, uh, it though it was spoken by large populations, um, the literacy was still very very limited and. Um as, as any student of language will know, uh, language is not just its script. Um, so there are various scripts in which the spoken languages of northern India were written. Most prominently uh, was the Arabic or the modified Arabic script, the Persian script that was used. Um, but also there were uh, different forms of uh, Indic scripts. So one of them is known as Devanagari, which, unlike the Arabic script, is written from left to right. And, um, certain nationalists start to say that we should not be forced to read and write in what they were calling a foreign script, the Arabic script. We should have our own script. And not only that, we should not be forced to use uh, vocabulary that's brought in from outside of this country, from places like Af- from, from from Persian and from Arabic, we should find uh, equivalents in from our own literary traditions, namely from Sanskrit, to replace these Arabic and Persian terms. So um, this is where we start to see the division between Hindi as a language of a Hindu population and Urdu increasingly becoming associated with the Muslim populations of South Asia. Um, It's it's rather complicated, but it's it's also a strange situation because grammatically, these two languages are more or less identical. So um, in ordinary conversation, it is difficult to say whether one is speaking Hindi or whether one is speaking Urdu. But as Urdu started to become associated with uh, the Arabic script and with Muslim identities, and Hindi advocates started to say that this is that Hindi is a language that's written in the Devanagari script, and somehow represents the uh, the the majority Hindu population. Um, those those popula- the the different advocates for these these two different languages. They start to have to use the same rhetoric that's employed by the British. To enumerate how many speakers and readers and writers of their languages they have, and uh, and increasingly uh, the the people who advocated for Urdu as an official language, they found that they could not justify their claims of being the language of the Hindu majority, and uh, increasingly they had to retrench into. Um, uh, more of what we might call uh, a religious nationalism by the early 20th century. So uh, I, I realize I need to say, like, how, how does this connect with, with dictionaries? If you imagine that Hindi and Urdu are one language, they're largely differentiated based on their vocabularies and, and predominantly their technical vocabularies. So uh, the reason that dictionaries are really important for documenting this linguistic strife is because it's not in their grammars. If you uh, a Hindi and Urdu grammar will be more or less identical, except for the scripts that are employed. But a Hindi and Urdu dictionary will appear very different from one another, especially in the twentieth century. And so, uh, one of the the different figures that I that I discuss in the second half of my book, uh, they are more or less involved with British lexicographic efforts. So the first figure, um, the first uh, figure, his name is Mirza Jan Tapish. He writes a dictionary in Bengal, an area where Hindi is not widely spoken and certainly was not widely spoken then. But he writes it for a a Muslim nobleman who wants his children to be able to speak in the language of the Mughal Empire, the Mughal uh, Center in Delhi. And so he prepares a dictionary he later uh, this author uh, who writes this dictionary he's a he's a poet from Delhi he gets himself caught up rightly or wrongly I'm not sure in a conspiracy case uh, in which the British accuse him of trying to overthrow the British government so he gets imprisoned but I think while he's in prison I, I think I tried to demonstrate this he gets involved with uh, trying with a uh, with an with a uh, Due to English dictionary that's prepared by several British colonial officials. And so in some ways he's one of the first uh, Indian scholars to contribute to a British, uh, a British uh, effort to understand Indian languages. And uh, by the end of the 19th century, there's another figure whom I focus on um, S W Fallon. He was a very fascinating lexicographer of, of uh, South Asian languages. he, was not interested in documenting the language of poets. And he found uh the the Hindi of the pandits or the the, the priests and the Urdu of the Molvis or the, the religious scholars to be pedantic. Instead what he was interested in doing is collecting different folk songs and and different uh proverbs and and writing those and and collecting those and uh, and finding examples of those. And he also employed a number of different uh, Indian assistants. And several of these assistants then went on to prepare their own dictionaries that document the spoken languages uh, of Northern India. And one of the things I argue in this is that by the end of the 19th century, as different advocates of Hindi and Urdu and Hindustani and other uh, different forms of the North Indian languages as they start to articulate their political demands, they have to say that our language is the language of this many, you know, a huge number of speakers. And so rather than focusing on a few very select, very outstanding poets as evidence of the quality of the language, uh, increasingly there's an effort to document the language of ordinary people, of non-elite people as an, as a way of demonstrating how many speakers, the number of speakers in order to make those political ma- demands of the, the British government at that time.
0: Now, as we move into the, the 20th century here, um, there's kind of uh, many breaks uh, in history here in terms of uh, some of the religious and political uh, features you've already outlined, um, but also uh, in kind of uh, technological production, I guess we could say, um, that are shaping uh, kind of these d- dictionary productions. So um, before we get into to some of the authors specifically that you deal with um, in the 20th century, can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the, the social and material challenges uh, that were changing uh, dictionary production during this time, how were the purposes of dictionaries uh, being reimagined during this this time?
1: Right. Um, it it might be helpful to think of this in terms of a set of dichotomies, or maybe a pendulum swinging swinging back and forth. So, if we think of the year seventeen hundred as a time when Urdu or or Hindi or whatever you want to call it is a uh, Primarily a spoken language without a literary tradition, and by the year 1800, it starts Urdu starts to function as a language of poetry primarily, uh, and and as a as a literary language. By the year 1900, it becomes a language of prose. It becomes a language of administration, and it starts to take on many of the roles that had previously been served by Persian. as as a language of administration. And so the types of materials that lexicographers would cover changes. So from the early periods where it seems to describe primarily a spoken language to the year 1800 where it documents primarily a poetic language to this weird situation at the turn of the 20th century where dictionaries have to serve both as documents of This long, by this point, 200 year, 300 year uh, literary tradition, but also as a way of demonstrating the capaciousness of this language. So um, I I give the example that dictionaries are, you might think of them as being analogous to how each nation needs to have a flag or, you know, these days uh, countries like to field teams in the Olympics, perhaps it's a, it's a symbol of a nation. Of a nation's arrival on the world stage, and so um, in some ways, if there isn't, uh, dictionaries also need to demonstrate how big they can get, and um, and uh, in a way to represent the nation. And what happens is, really large dictionaries become impossible for a single inter for a single individual to complete by by her or his self, and so we start to see these. Um, these uh, groups of people coming together, often under some sort of official state patronage, to prepare really monumental, massive, multi-volume dictionaries, and so um, uh, to to uh, to finance that sort of thing, there there are various different ways to do so. So um, when the when the British rule India, they often rule India through indirect means. So um, the most the wealthiest and the largest princely state in colonial India was uh, was that ruled by the Nizam of Hyderabad, who was a Muslim uh, Muslim leader who provided a great deal of patronage to many different uh, many different Urdu scholars in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. But also uh, there there was rising at the same time a very vibrant. South Asian culture of, uh, of vernacular press. And so many other, uh, scholars, they were able to sustain themselves largely based on the revenues they generated from selling many copies of printed works. Um, this is enabled partly by the expansion of literacy, uh, in, in South Asia in the 19th century. Uh, but also there are certain technological changes as well. So, uh, there's uh, the advent of cheap paper made possible through sulfite printing. There's the advent of lithography, which is a type of printing that requires um, that re- that rather than using movable block prints, it requires etching onto a stone, uh, a sort of oily substance, and then and then printing it. Uh, uh, pressing that, so it, it it resembles handwriting more closely than printing does, and it became a very uh, effective way and, and a preferred way for representing the Arabic script in South Asia, um, and uh, and then uh, also just just uh, the the rise of various corporations and various voluntary organizations that could uh, raise through subscription money to finance large projects so the culmination of this is uh, a work that was finally finished in the year 2010 it's modeled it's um it's a historical dictionary of urdu in i think it's 22 volumes it's modeled on the oxford english dictionary and it took over 50 years to be prepared so it it took it, it 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 um it required more than a single lifetime in the case of the person who started it. It was finished by a different group of people, very much compiled by a committee and uh it was sponsored by the uh independent uh nation of Pakistan as in some ways an emblem of that of that country's new official language and and as a manifestation of their standing on equal footing with other great Linguistic traditions that had massive lexicographic projects like, like the Germans, like, like the British.
0: Now, um, you look at, um, several specific texts during the, uh, the 20th century here or right around the turn, turn of the century. Um, some of them are, uh, by very well-known or well-respected, um, Lexicographers, uh, both South Asian and British, um, and then others seem to have almost their work uh, been left behind or uh, fade away in some ways. Um, I don't. I don't know the best way to pose a question here, but per, perhaps you could talk about uh, the kind of uh, works that's happening at this time. These these relationships between. Uh, South Asian uh, lexicographers and their uh, British counterparts, um, and then why some would be uh, seen as more authentic or authoritative than others. I think this is probably uh, key in, in these this chapter here, or these chapters.
1: Well, so I, I begin the, the last chapter of my book by comparing two British lexicographers. One, uh, his name is John T. Platts, and he wrote what many people still consider to be the best, uh, Urdu to English dictionary, uh, that that's available. It was published in 1884, but he wrote his dictionary, uh, from his home and from the libraries in Oxford, uh, in the United Kingdom. So he collected various written materials and he extracted words that he thought, uh. Needed to be defined and and collect as many different dictionaries as he could. It's what I call a library dictionary. At the other extreme was a text that was that was published just a few years earlier by S. W. Fallon, who also had a career as a uh, British colonial official. Uh, and but as I was mentioning about him before, he had a small uh, a, uh, he had a he had a small but very dedicated group of assistants whom he sent out on missions to collect as many different pro- proverbs, folk sayings, um, uh, songs. Uh, the, he was especially interested in the language of women. And uh, he was interested in documenting the the spoken languages of uh, of northern India. And so um, while there are many things that are missing from Fallon's dictionaries, uh, and in many ways, it's not as useful to, let's say, the American student who's trying to read old texts. It is uh, in some ways much more useful for actually communicating with it might be more might be more useful, for example, to an anthropologist who would be doing field work today. Of course, these are 120, 130 year old uh, dictionaries, so the language itself is quite dated at this point. But what's what's fascinating to me is that uh, Platts was able to, as far as we know, prepare his dictionary more or less by himself. Um, Fallon, on the other hand, relied on assistants. And as I mentioned earlier, these assistants went on to have very, uh, very successful careers, I think, as uh, as scholars and as lexicographers in their own right. The two whom I i place the most focus are uh, on whom i place the most focus are um one is a, a muslim scholar named syed Ahmad of delhi and the other his name is chiranjilal who is a who is a hindu and um syed Ahmad wrote what became a four volume dictionary it was financed largely by the the very wealthy nizam of hyderabad was uh, the the ruler of India's largest princely state, and uh, uh, he not only incorporates a lot of the material that he had collected uh, while working for Fallon, but one of the things that's really strange about this text, at least to our our own eyes, is that he puts in a lot of personal anecdotes so in in one section I, I talk about his definition of the word Kashmiri in which he provides a poem. And he provides a long tirade, like you could only call it a tirade, in which he criticizes Kashmiris as being uh, scoundrels and cheaters, and he describes how uh, he was cheated out of out of a great sum of money by a particular Kashmiri. This this is not supposed to appear in dictionaries, at least. Not not in modern dictionaries. You're not supposed to put that much of your own personality into it. Um, in his definition for the word that's associated with syphilis, he gives many different theories in a long footnote about how syphilis is transmitted. All of them are wrong, by the way. But it's it's fascinating because it takes up about half a page, and it's based on his own personal experiences and his own what he witnessed himself as what he what he witnessed um, and so. Uh, that's that's it's very interesting that he does that, and I argue, he's he does this. He puts his own poetry, he puts his own experiences into his definitions, partly because he was um, he was writing at a time when the models for authority for linguistic authority were changing. So as I mentioned, uh, around the year eighteen hundred, if you wanted to be a respected lexicographer. In, in Indian language, you also had to be. You first had to establish yourself establish yourself as a as a poet. But by the end of the nineteenth century, uh, increasingly poets or increasingly lexicographers demonstrate their authority by their um, by their credentials. So just as I did at the beginning of our interview, where I talked about my education, you see people appending letters to their names. So you'll see Syed Imad and then you'll see the various degrees that he received after his name, in what's sort of like um, a, 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 uh, an effort to establish his credentials um, through through various forms of institutional uh, accreditation. And um, so I, I also argue that uh, Syed Imad, he put in so many personal anecdotes also as a way to uh prevent people from plagiarizing his uh dictionary entries because as i was saying this is a very uh lucrative market because there are so many people who are seeking to learn and and read urdu because it was an official language including many people who didn't speak it as their first language and uh often there would be cheap uh, plagiarism. Mean, Still so today, you can find unauthorized, uh, editions of various texts rapidly produced. And I think that he was putting in a lot of his own, uh, personal anecdotes as a way to, uh, prevent people from rapidly making copies of whatever he prepared. They would at least have to go through and remove that stuff. Now, contrasted with him was another assistant of Fallon, Chiranjilal, who also was from Delhi. But unlike Said Ahmad, he couldn't claim to be a high-status Muslim. And in many ways, I argue that Chiranjila's dictionary, the one that he produced uh, shortly uh, around the same time at the end of the 19th century, is in many ways m- much more useful than uh, Said uh, Ahmad Said Delivi's dictionary because it was, I think, largely intended for people who wanted to learn Urdu Um in order to get government jobs and in order to pursue careers using that language. Um, so these are, it was written for Indians, but not necessarily Indians who spoke Urdu as their mother tongue. Um, but unfortunately for him, by uh, the start of the 20th century, the rivalry between advocates, the elite advocates for Hindi written in the Devanagari script using largely Sanskrit uh, vocabulary. And uh, Urdu advocates writing in the Arabic script and using largely Persian vocabulary had reached such a, a fevered pitch that um, that uh, a Hindu author of a dictionary could not really be respected as a as, as an uh, as a lexicographer because in some ways he he was on the wrong side of this religious divide that had become associated with really a. Um, uh, a, a linguistic divide that was, that was based on, as I argue, the different, uh, different vocabulary of these, these two or this of the single language and the two styles of the single language. Uh,
0: Walt, there's a lot to this book. Um, uh, <laughs> yes. I, I want to give you, I want to give you a, uh, I don't know if there's any final things you want to kind of wrap up with that, uh, we haven't been able to get to.
1: Yeah. So, um, I, I, I maybe just to bookend this, uh, I, I start off, the the book by talking about how writing a dictionary, organizing a dictionary using alphabetical order didn't really make sense in a time when, for one thing, very few people knew how to read and write and the written forms of spoken languages would change from author to author, often from day to day. And so instead what people used was a way of organizing that uh, we might call a thematic organization. So what's fascinating is that many of the earliest dictionaries and earliest vocabularies, they're not organized by alphabetical order, but rather from this notion that the world, the universe is organized in some sort of hierarchical way. So uh, everybody can agree that God is the most high thing. It doesn't matter if you believe that there's one God or many gods. But everyone can agree that there, you know, that God is the highest, uh, is the highest being, and we also might agree that uh, that the mineral realm is the lowest realm, or maybe the vegetable realm, or something like that. And so, many multilingual vocabularies. It doesn't matter if they're prepared in Europe. Doesn't matter if they're prepared in Asia. They organize their material not by alphabetical order, but based on a sort of shared notion that the universe is hierarchically arranged by some sort of logic. And this book I think really documents how that shared notion, it doesn't matter what religious background you came from, really starts to break down in the 19th century as languages become standardized, as script starts to become more important, as printing becomes more important, and as uh, the, the way that a word is written starts to become more important than the actual meaning of that word. And it's, it's meaning within a greater uh, hierarchy. And so I, I teach a class uh, almost every year on the history of dictionaries and lexicography. And I, I love to ask my students at the beginning of the semester, they're, they're usually 18-year-olds. Uh, so that means that they're at this point all born after the year 2000 or around the year 2000. How many of them brought a dictionary to college with them? And uh, most students do not bring a paper dictionary with them. Most students have little to no experience actually thumbing through a dictionary and trying to look up a word using alphabetical order. Instead, most students do have dictionaries with them, but it's it's located on their computers or most likely on their cell phones. And the way that they look those words up at this point has nothing to do with alphabetical order. So it doesn't matter that ant follows aardvark to them because they are able to access whatever where they want simply by long pressing on their phones or right clicking or whatever other way whatever means they have to access it. So in some ways it's it's fascinating to me as I see more and more Urdu dictionaries uh they're they're not being printed as they once were even though the the print market in India and Pakistan is still very vibrant. Uh increasingly these are appearing online. And so I'll be very curious to see in the future how the way that we organize languages, uh, if it once was based on the shared notion of a hierarchical, hierarchical organization of the universe, and then it was based on this idea that words should be organized by the way that they're spelled, well, what, is the, what, is, what do new technologies permit, and, and how do they change the way that we access, that we access and remember vocabulary? And so, I mean, that's, that's the question I, I, I still have, and I'm, I'm still learning from largely from my students, the ways that they learn and they understand languages.
0: Hmm. Well, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful book. Thank you for writing it. And uh, thanks for making the time to talk about it. Um, I'd love to hear what kind of things you're working on now, because it seems like you could take this in all sorts of directions. And uh, I know you have other interests as well. So
1: as uh, I, I was fortunate in, in, my first book because I think I was able to tell a fairly big story with a relatively limited set of materials, particularly in one genre, the dictionary genre. Um, But I remained fascinated by how spoken languages first come to be written down and largely because of my own limitations, uh, my own linguistic limitations, I primarily work with Hindi and Urdu. So I'm interested in documenting uh, are different ways that Hindi and Urdu first came to be written down. Um, and this project may be in some ways a bit smaller, but will use a wider range of materials. So I just returned from a really fun three-week trip to India to visit uh, various sites of early inscriptions, meaning writing on stone or writing in stucco in public spaces in which uh, vernacular languages or the the generally the the, non, um, the, the the non-official languages of India, the spoken languages of India, uh, were written down. So I had a chance to tour a number of different sites and to work at the Archaeological Survey of India's Arabic and Persian epigraphy bench to look at some of the earliest examples of Urdu and Hindi being written in public spaces. Um, I'm also very interested in following up and doing more work on that really fascinating genre of uh, vocabularies written in verse, multilingual vocabularies in verse. And I'm also uh, interested in some of the earliest forms of literature that are written in these languages, and particularly what happens when a language that is spoken, what, what happens when an author starts to see and imagine the ways that that language can be played with when it takes a written form. And so, you know, one of the most obvious examples of this is that um, punning uh, takes on new valences when uh, spoken language becomes written. And so there are a number of really fascinating works from the 17th and 18th centuries that take advantage of the, the ways in which... Urdu, as it becomes a written language, um, it creates opportunities for homonyms and homographs, and uh, and other sorts of verbal, verbal play. So, I'd like to combine my interest in, in these different types of writing and try to really understand what literacy, like how how literacy changes in South Asia, especially literacy in the Arabic script and the different. Forms and functions that writing takes, especially as it interacts with different spoken languages. But um, you know, more than that, I just I'm excited to meet and to work with scholars who work in other linguistic traditions and and learn from them about uh, how they may see related or or very different phenomena occurring in their own literature. So um, that's that's what's exciting about this particular stage of my career is that I I feel like I'm just Vacuuming up as much information as I can from scholars who are working on, say, Korea or or Arabic languages or or Turkish and other different uh, literary traditions, um, as as an effort to try to understand this as a as a broader global phenomenon. Mm
0: yeah that yeah, sounds fascinating, and uh certainly uh your your first book here negotiating languages, I think does open up a lot of uh new ways of thinking about the relationship between language and culture and history uh f- for for people beyond uh, the South Asian context that you look at. so I hope listeners will will pick up the book and uh thanks again for for talking to me about it. It was a pleasure
1: well, thank you so much Christian. It was a real pleasure.
0: That was my conversation with Walter Hakala about Negotiating Languages, Urdu, Hindi, and the Definition of Modern South Asia, published with Columbia University Press in 2016. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.